it was this journey to, to solve a problem paired with being part of this community of people. I haven't really put it in that terms before until just now, but I, I really think those are our two themes, like creating things together that, that, really, that really drives me. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today we are talking about the confluence of community building, of market research, and of diabetes. David Edelman founded Thrivable, which is a Cleveland-based startup that has just recently closed on $1.7 million in funding after experiencing the disconnect firsthand between what diabetes patients want and what healthcare companies are actually building. Thrivable helps these healthcare companies get the voice of the patient into all of their decisions and reduces this research cycle from months down to hours. Thrivable also includes an ancillary platform called Diabetes Daily, which is a leading online community reaching millions every year, helping those touched by diabetes achieve healthier, happier, and more hope-filled lives. We go really deep here on community building and company building and really the whole journey that David has experienced over the last few years. And it's a pretty incredible journey at that. I really enjoyed this conversation a lot and I hope you all do as well. So like any good story, you know, I, it always helps to start at the beginning. So I, I'd love to travel back in time a bit here and, and kind of work through the the arc of your entrepreneurial journey. So to start, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and, and some of those formative moments that set you on this path? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've always been a couple things. One, not a rule follower, you know, got, I don't know if I was like booted <laughs> from first grade or asked to leave, but, you know, really butted heads my first grade teacher who demanded that I read something I did not want to read and uh, things like that that escalated until... Actually, you know, let's not start with my first grade dis- dysfunction. Um, <laughs> let's let's move ahead to entrepreneurial journey, formative years. I think one of the first things that I did that was really formative for me was creating a dial-up BBS when I was 13 years old out of the out of my bedroom. So I had a, a second phone line, and people would call in or and you know connect to the the modem and. <laughs> I had to like figure it all out. You have to download the software to run the BBS and you have to like kind of play with the code. I didn't know anything about coding to like get it to have the name of my BBS. And I can't even remember what it's called. I think my name was something really janky, like Dark Warrior or something, you know, 13 year old. Oh, classic. Yes, boyish. Yes. That was, I didn't have a cool <laughs> name. Like there's a, a member Jabberwocky. Like that was a cool name. Uh, I always had a little envy on that. Private uh, Tinkles. That was that was our go-to pro- name forever. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's delightful. See, it's 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 clever and, <laughs> and and cutesy, and so but I built up this little community even then. Where I remember I got a twenty-dollar donation. I was getting invites to go meet up at Squire's Castle and go play frisbee from people who were in their twenties, like having no idea they're chatting with a thirteen-year-old boy in his bedroom. But it was a cool thing. We 
I think the basic premise of the BBS was that we would download like cracked games by Razor One Nine One One, which is like a cracking group from the '90s. And then I think we're past the statute of limitations, I think, and share this. And we would just like <laughs> people would like log in and download them. We distribute it. So it's like a little like if you would talk about video games, like a like a chat forum, and people would just people would just log on and leave messages for each other and and share files. And I thought that was the coolest thing. It was fun to play with the tech. It was fun to figure out how it worked. It was, it was this journey to solve a problem paired with being part of this community of people. I haven't really put it in that terms before until just now, but I, I really think those are are two themes, like creating things together. That that really, that really drives me. I think I kept a lot of that. I I was always kind of working on stuff as a, a teenager, like kind of into computers, but but not just like music recording. And I had a, a a project in high school to spend a year recording an album. I actually recorded like two songs. It's actually really hard to record an album. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like building a home studio, figuring out how it works and digital and multi-track recorder. And I remember one of my classmates, Mike Lovett, did the same thing, but he did analog, like with, with the tape thing. And at the mm-hmm. end, like I had just done my presentation. I'm really nervous, like presenting in front of the school. And like, this is, I'm, you know, it's, I'm, a, I'm a teenager. I don't, I don't want all that attention. And, and he came up afterwards and he's like, ah, I should have gone digital. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> to me, that was like the best compliment ever, right? That like, and it sounded, yes, that, sounded that good. You know, went off to, went off to college, went to Brown because it, there weren't a lot of rules and I could do what I want and kind of make my own education. I didn't know what I was doing or what I wanted to do. So I kind of maybe screwed around a little bit and did not, you know, maximize. Following like, your first it, grade self. Following my first grade self, except I was not asked to leave. I was asked to stay. I was given a diploma. <laughs> my parents found out I was an education major on graduation day. They're like, you're an education major? <laughs> and at Brown, it's very interdisciplinary. So like, you know, going to my senior year, I was like, all right, I need, a, I need to graduate. And so I'd like taken a sociology class, a philosophy class, a politics class that all could kind of be crammed into this category of education. You know, that was my path, pathway to a degree. But I worked on some entrepreneurial things there too as well. I started a digital magazine called Scatter, which was like Facebook, except not worth a trillion dollars today. Um, <laughs> and worked on a sunrise alarm clock, worked on just always, I worked for this guy, Rick Goldman, who was a CFO and he was just looking for like a college helper. He wanted to launch this company called Bookkeeping Solutions, which was like remote bookkeeping before before it was cool and you know way ahead of the market like you needed like a like big scanners and everything is slow and the computers but like right uh, still a cool idea and 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 i just love that stuff then after college i got a job at my worst nightmare a large industrial distribution company that is incredibly good at printing money and like incredibly Mm -hmm. good at printing money but like does not want any innovation on any level yeah they're, the company's they, fig- they figured out the way they do it, and that's the way. Exactly. And so I struggled there for a year, left like one day short of a year. I think I would have like even made a bonus if I could have stayed one more day, but like I <laughs> like reached my absolute capacity. <laughs> and you know, went to work for a family business and and started doing some freelance web design on the side, helping companies with intranets and websites and stuff like that. It all came to a head when I. I met a woman, Elizabeth, this was in 2005, and we went on a date down to Sushi Rock downtown. Uh, Mm -hmm. It wasn't a date, we were actually set up by, we had a mutual friend and she invited us all out. But on the 
the way back, she was talking about she can never figure out the right amount of insulin to take for sushi. And so we, you know, went to look online and figure out, all right, how much insulin do you take for sushi? And there was no good answers. There was a kind of clicky diabetes form out there, but that was it. And so we thought, how great would it be if there was just a website where people could connect and share information, kind of open, supportive environment. And so we put up, we put up diabetesdaily.com and started, started working on it. <laughs> I don't know that it's <laughs> this, like, I, this is 2005. It's yep. 2021, so this is 16 years ago. And there's just so much that has happened. Like if we could probably do a whole podcast on my commercial failures attached to Diabetes Daily, you know, Diabetes Daily <laughs> University, we got when we're de-indexed by Google, when Medicare changes, got rid of 70% of our customers in one day by kind of destroying the companies. I mean, many of those things sound really interesting there, but I'd love to just kind of pull on the thread that you kind of mentioned earlier on, uh, having kind of realized the, the commonality of this community building and, and figuring stuff out as, as kind of these two passions of yours. With Diabetes Daily, was there a vision of, you know, the community that you ultimately ended up building or was it really just about, you know, trying to answer the sushi question or, or you know, how, what, what degree in the future were you thinking about when, when you threw this up? That's a, an interesting question. Probably thinking it wasn't meant to be like a business. It wasn't like, all right, I'm going to have a startup and I'm going to build this thing. It was very much a, this would be fun to work on, like a hobby squarely in the, the hobby camp. And for me, I just, I liked the learning at all the levels. I liked learning about diabetes. I liked learning about development. I liked learning about, you know, Google AdWords, marketing. It was just a chance to kind of dive in and pick up all these skills while helping people. So it was just a great environment in, in, in which to do that. And so, I mean, I remember when we had 10 visitors a day, and I was so stuck because you could like follow the individual visitor around. I was like, went to this page, that page. <laughs> Someone would post a question on the forum and I would immediately like go look at journals and do all the research and like figure out how to give this person the A plus answer, like a stack exchange classic post. And yep, every yep. single person, I did that. This is stuff that does not scale, right? If, if I remember at some point in the middle of the 2010s doing like a little calculation on like total revenue divided by hours spent. And it was like, maybe I was making $3 an hour, maybe $2 an hour. Like it's preposterous as a business. So I think it was hard to imagine as a business. Like I didn't know how to sell advertising. I didn't know anything about business really. But I, I had this desire to, to create something and it, it slowly grew, right? It's maybe a, I, I need to go back and pull the old graphs, but like it's, you know, yeah, end yeah. of end of year one, we had had like 10,000 visitors, right? And end of year two was 500 a day, and then it's 1,000 a day, and then 2,000 a day. And now it's, you know, hundreds of thousands a month and, you know, millions per year of people. And it's like, it's unfathomable. I don't think I could have started and imagined that kind of scale of, of, of reaching people. It's pretty cool. It is really cool. I love to hear some of the stories that that maybe have come as a consequence of building this community and and how you know people have kind of interacted. Because I, I I think all these like online communities are just like fascinating in the way that people without knowing each other are just really helping each other. <laughs> it's wild, and there you know there are moments that are poignant and moments that are like I, some of my best friends in the world. Some of like most of my best friends in the world like live across the world and I've met through this community work and but maybe I'll start with a, a quick 
e example of one of these like moments that has just stuck with me. So in 2012, I was getting divorced. Part wasn't so fun, but I was also getting in shape. I decided I'd done a 5K the last year and then I'd done a 10K like three weeks later. And I was terrified of the 10K because it's twice as long as a 5K and I'd never done a 5K and the 5K <laughs> was really hard. At the end of the 10K, I'm like, I felt amazing. I had probably the best runner's high of my life. And so I oh, got yeah. to the finish line and I was like, we have to do a marathon next year. This is awesome. My, my friend, <laughs> Carrie. And so, so I signed up for a marathon the next year and then I, I kind of trained the best I could. And so now it's the, a year later and I am about to go to the starting line of the Chicago marathon. And I must've mentioned it on the, on diabetes daily because I got a, a message, maybe it was on Facebook and it was like, Hey, I'm a member of the website and I just wanted to, I, I heard you were running the Chicago marathon. I am running it tomorrow or two days, I'd love to meet you. Do you want to meet for coffee the day before? So I said, absolutely. That sounds phenomenal. And so we met at a little coffee shop and she's like introduced me to her husband and her husband like went off to hang out and we just sat there and she told me this incredible story. She's, I think she was 52. She's or probably 52. She said, I was 48 and I had, when I got diagnosed with diabetes, she's like, and I was an athlete. I was like top shape of my life, really into everything. And it all fell apart. I couldn't manage it. I couldn't do any of it. It was about a year later. And she's like, and I was making plans to commit suicide. And she said, one of the things that saved me is I was looking up diabetes and running. And I came across Diabetes Daily. And I started reading all these posts from people who were athletic, doing triathlons and Ironmans and doing it all with diabetes. And she's like, and something just shifted in me. And she's like, I think that if I had not found Diabetes Daily, she's like, I don't even know if I'd be alive today, let alone sitting here about to run the Chicago Marathon. And that just like you know, goosebumps and tingles. Like it was. I, mean, I, I literally <laughs> got goosebumps just now. So. <laughs> so, like, that's the thing. Like, things can be so impactful on a micro scale, like, like the one person. And then you try to scale up into your head to like, you know, everyone who visits, a lot of people are looking up recipes or they're, you know, whatever. It's not like you're not necessarily transforming their life, but there are actually a lot of people who, whose lives are transformed by that connection, the peer support they get, because diabetes is hard. The rates of depression are through the roof. Maybe one out of three people with diabetes at any given time is, is experiencing depression. And it's, it's everything in your life Plus the fact that you have to manage your blood sugars for, on behalf of your pancreas all day without a break. And if you have dessert or go have a really active day or a sedentary day when you're usually active, like it throws your body into a, a tailspin that you have to manage yourself. And so that's hard. That's really hard. And I, I didn't, until I you know, met and lived with someone living with diabetes, I didn't get it, right? I didn't, well, I didn't actually know it diabetes was. <laughs> I didn't get it on a lot of levels. <laughs> but just to see how, how much work, and it's invisible, right? You don't see it on the outside. Someone looks fine. You don't know that their like, blood sugars are 300, which is really high, and they're feeling just awful, like just nauseous. They want to throw up, and yet they have to go through and be on a podcast or take a test or run a race, you know, whatever it is. So I think of her all the time. Yeah, I can imagine. That's a, that's a powerful story. When you think about this community at this point, and I imagine it maybe has changed over time, but is it a place really for people to find answers? Is it a place for people to find support 
you know, how, how does the community kind of evolved in, in that, in that way? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's multiple things to multiple people. And it's kind of interesting too, because there are multiple communities within the community. There are people who, you know, more passive, right? They subscribe to our newsletter, they read our blog and, and that's their engagement. They're just like, uh, you know, I got an email today. I share with the team that was like, oh my God, I read everything you write. I love it. Just keep doing what you're doing and never stop. It's like, okay, that's, that's, that's cool. Right. But they're, so they're nice. reading, but they're not necessarily <laughs> interacting. You know, that's, that's more the exception than the rule. We have a Facebook community that people are, you know, half a million or so followers. And so share stuff there. And like the comment section is its own little community. It's Facebook. It's a, the wild west of, of all, all people. <laughs> and then you have the, the forum, which I really consider the heart of our community. And that is very much around like people come with a question, but they'll stay for the support. Right? You, you, you find it because you're searching for something and then you find other people and then people just kind of end up coming back. And a lot of people kind of come, solve their problem and go. A lot of people come, solve their problem. And then whenever they have a problem, they're back. And other people become, you know, become regulars. And just, you know, there are some people who spend, I, I kid you not, over 40, 50 hours a week on the, the website, which is wild. But they, what they get out of it is, and it's a lot of people who are retired. Right, they're retired, and they're like, "I my job is everyone who comes here with a problem. I'm gonna try to save their life." <laughs> like that's that's, and they get all this joy from like from 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 that from offering that kind of help. And that's I mean that's kind of the the key to it. I, I've been thinking a lot today, as you know, thinking about the, the podcast. Like, what is it that makes a community? Like, what is that that recipe? It's funny because the same thing that my answer for diabetes daily is actually the same answer for by company thrivable like what like the, the team that runs it but yeah. it's it's finding people who love the community and want to take care of it it can't be yours right if you try to build a community and it's like i it's my community and i'm going to just run it and we're going to get a lot of people and they're just going to come and it'll grow up like you actually need the moderating team you need the regulars you need the people who are and those people are the culture right they're the ones who you can only interact with so many people and then this is the second order group of people that maybe absorb your culture and help spread it, spread it to the community. So we have like eight moderators across four continents, you know, as far away as Malaysia and, you know, uh, the UK and Canada and the US. And they make the organization, they make the community work. I can't read every post. There's like thousands every week. <laughs> right. so, so it's, you know, someone needs to take care of each person who comes and make sure their experience is positive. And then they set as an example the culture, and then you need community values that we, you know, talk a lot about and still in the community. So people will report a post if there's a problem, right? They'll say this is someone's offering medical advice, someone's being rude, or someone's passive aggressive, and you know, it takes a lot of. The hardest part about community is just people, <laughs> managing people. Yeah, yeah, people are the community, <laughs> and maybe not the ninety-five percent of people, but it's. Like there's a couple percent of people that are like, some people are just toxic and you're like, all right, you, this is community. It doesn't work. And it's, we give you five chances and you just cannot interact with people without like going off the handle all the time. Okay. So that's like, that's a tiny group of people. Like maybe, maybe there's 10 people a year, five people a year. You need to be like, this just isn't working. But then you have a group of people who are actually really good people and their hearts in the right place, but maybe their social skills are just not a hundred percent. Right, they're they're like good-hearted cantankerous, or uh, <laughs> like high-volume misinformed, and 
strong-willed about it, and then you get a couple people like that, and they clash heads. And yes, confidently wrong. Confidently wrong. <laughs> but that's you don't want to lose people like that, and so, but that like little percentage of the community is is, is so much work. Because you don't want to just kick people out. Like you could probably do a harder line. Right, I think right. some communities do, but we've always tried to be inclusive, for better or worse. Yeah, well, it sounds like we're better. We're <laughs> <laughs> better. There were a lot yeah. of communities. There are not a lot of diabetes communities right now. There are some on social media, some big Facebook groups, but it's it's kind of strange. Like there was a, a large number of communities, and then they most of them just kind of atrophied and 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 went away. Yeah. So there, there's some staying power and longevity that has come as a as a consequence of this. Don't make too many changes. Almost every major collapse is preceded by something like, we have this new, better platform. And the problem is people hate change. And so now we make changes. It's like, we're going to change just the navigation or just two buttons. Like all of our changes are incremental. When we switch forum software, we made it look precisely like the old one, even though it's not exactly the necessarily the best, best layout, but it's like what people knew. A couple tweaks, a couple improvements, but... There's there's comfort and there's comfort in what people know. Yeah, it's a little chicken bowl of matzo ball soup. <laughs> it's comfort food for me. <laughs> yep, me as well. Me as well. Well, I'd love to cross the bridge here to to Thrivable and kind of speak to to what you're building there. So you know, at some point, what you're building with with Diabetes Daily transitions from what is a hobby to is there ever this intent that this is actually something I want to make a business and pursue full-time and and then just kind of paint the picture of what Thrivable is and how it kind of developed out of this progression of the growth of Diabetes Daily. The the desire to make it a business started, I think, is like the amount of time it it took up started to increase. Like a hobby's mm, great, yeah. right? You're like, oh, what's your hobby? I, you know, repair old cars. I go, you know, I I I play music and I do it after work for an hour or two. But if your hobby starts taking up 30 to 40 hours a week, <laughs> like you probably need to find a way to get paid for your hobby because that is not sustainable. And then it's worse when you're like, well, actually now I have, you know, development expenses and I have, I need other people because I want, like you start to need help and you're like, all right, so this, this needs to be a business. And so my, I, I stayed very generously by my dad and employed in the family business, which gave me um, a, you know, modest income to cover the rent and, and to really for, for years and, and invest in, turning diabetes daily into more of a, a business. And it took a while. Like you on a, a social media website, a media website, you need millions of page views. Like you can't do it with hundreds of thousands. You literally need millions of page views to start to make any kind of money. You can make money by just putting an ad network on your website, but you don't get paid a lot. Like an example of a rate would be like $3 per thousand page views. Uh, would be like a great rate for, for advertising. But if you have an advertiser running ads directly on your website, it might be $30, $20, $40, depending upon what it is. And so it's just an order of magnitude more revenue. And so in the 20, like 2016, 2017, 2015, started getting some bigger advertisers. We're finally at a big enough scale where we could do that. And then with that, we could afford to professionalize, like add to our team and started to have there's a lot of people. I think we had like two full-time equivalents, which to me was this like enormous, enormous team. It's just me. Yeah, right? yeah. So me to two is like, wow, it's three <laughs> times bigger. But it's not just two. It was like That's... four or five people working part-time. So it was like this huge, huge, huge team. And it started to work. But the, the problem is I hate advertising. I hate it. 
I hate selling advertising. <laughs> it is a it is a hard business to build up. It is not scalable. You're dependent on like traffic from Google, traffic from Facebook, traffic from whoever, and you're at the mercy of getting all these advertisers all the time. And it's just like I like to help people, and an advertisement doesn't exactly help people. Now, I happen to actually like every single one of our advertisers. Insulin makes my favorite. Insulin pump, Dexcom, continuous glucose meters. You know, we have uh, tandem insulin pumps. These are actually some of my favorite products in the the space, and I really, really like them. But selling advertising, it's like selling sand to Bedouins in the desert. Like, there is an endless (laughs) amount of places that you can go to get sand in the desert. And that is true of advertisers. You can go to any ad network, behavioral targeting, they can kind of reach your niche. Diabetes is pretty good. It's a little harder to reach. So we do have the ability to sell advertising, but it's just never going to be this big long-term success. And it's it's just risky. And I wanted something that was more in my control that was going to be more sustainable. I was like, I want Diabetes Daily to live, not die. And for that, it needs a better business model. And so I started searching, just started looking like, what do we have? And People had come to us over the years and would say something like, you're sitting on all this data. It's just this gold mine of data. Mm-hmm. And I would ask them, oh, great. How do you turn data into money? Like, like I'm missing like a key <laughs> piece here. Like, no one's ever called me and been like, David, I'd like to, to buy your data. Like, but what, is, what does that mean? Well, and right. the, the guy who gave me the key to unlocking it was Luis Diaz, who was chief patient officer at Medtronic. I was at the American Diabetes Association Conference. It's every year. It's like 20,000 people show up, including all the researchers and everybody from industry. So everyone from every company is there. So for us, this is like our five-day hustle. Have like 20 20 meetings a day. Start with like 8 a.m. breakfast. I try to move those to nine by the third day, uh, maybe (laughs) 10, because the parties go till two in the morning. But that's, those are also good networking, a chance to, you know, close the deal. So it's day one of this conference and I'm meeting with Luis Diaz and he, he, he mentions, David, you just had this great opportunity. I said, Lewis, if you were me, pretend you're me, and I just, I get, I'm going to give you diabetes daily, what would you do? And he said, listen, I would start a, a market research service. Like, and, and, he, and he went through, here are our current competitors. Here are our current providers. Here's what I don't like about them. Here's like some ways you could do it better. And just kind of outline this. And once I got that word market research, it was like, it was the key to unlock this whole Mm. mystery of like, what is data? Well, data is what do patients think about X, Y, and Z? You're bringing a product to market. Medtronic makes insulin pumps, continuous glucose meters. What should the app screen look like? What should the insulin pump look like? What are, how should notifications, alerts work? How do you price it? Like what, what are unmet needs? Like there's just a, in, in running a company, there's just a million questions you have to answer. And the problem in the market research space was you had these big agencies. We go to an agency, you give them a question, and it costs twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, and it takes two to three months to get an answer. So imagine you're developing an app, and you have like a couple small questions, or maybe you want to know tomorrow. That's not super helpful. You're like, you're not going to use that. You're going to just kind of go with your gut. You're going to sit around a table and come up with the best thing, and. <laughs> you really do see the impact of that type of decision-making in the products. They come out and patients are like, wait, why in the world did you do it this way? In the healthcare space where something might be FDA approved, like switching isn't just you just tweak the code. Like it might be a two-year <laughs> FDA release cycle before you can fix your, your mistakes. So Luis Diaz opened it up. And then that rest of that conference, I remember 
going into every one of these ad sales meetings. Hey, would you like to buy some advertising? Yeah, okay, we'll do what we did last year. Fine, fine, fine. And then and I get to the end, I'd be like, we're thinking about market research, making it easy for you to talk to patients. Oh, everybody sits forward and like they light up <laughs> and they're like, all of a sudden I was like, whoa, this is that thing called market pull. Like 10 years, I haven't felt this. Like I've never felt what it's like when someone actually wants what you're selling. So it was this crazy light bulb moment. So that was 2017. Went away for a year, came back in 2018, and I had recruited 5,000 patients for a panel and went to start pitching it. And we got an enormous contract from the very first person we talked to. And it wow. was like, 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 like mind-blowing contract size. And we realized, whoa, there is, like, there's an opportunity here. And so we did that. We did a bunch of projects we had this really big customer that we were able to service and and servicing them. Okay. A market research services company is great, but the problem is this industry, it's completely run on spreadsheets. It's agencies, right? So you, Oh, I want to, they send you a document, you send them back. And like, it just goes on and on and on and on. And then we had all these patients, 5,000, this big data set. Well, what happens when their data changes? How do you verify all the data? How do you do quality control? How do you do all these things? And we're like, okay, there's probably a solution to this out there. So let's just go buy one. Went out to the market and scoured every single possible variety in the space. And like all people said, they like did panel management. They could, no one had anything that was close to what we needed. And it was shocking. It was like this weird moment of serving the marketplace and being like, there's a giant hole in it. How did that happen? So decided, let's go out and raise uh, a seed round. So this was first experience with, with fundraising. Was it how like, traumatizing is the word? But it's like, <laughs> and it's on us. So for anyone who's thinking about raising money or as an entrepreneur has raised money, like either this will help you or like internalize this. Like the thing that I needed to know the most badly when raising money was investors do not care about your product. They do not care about your product. They they just don't care about your product. And they don't even care how it works. They care that like it works and there's a customer for it and it can there's a model to make money around it. They care about your product insofar as it is it differentiated in the marketplace? Is it real? Is maybe uh, so they care, but they don't actually. So I'd be starting with a demo and talking about all these amazing features and all these innovations and people like glaze over. They get lost like in these short conversations. You you can't build common ground. So it's going to pitch people and it was not going well. The second meeting, like the second meeting I had was with this guy, uh, Brad Owen, who built an amazing company called Neverbounce and exited to Zoom Info a couple years ago. And I've known Brad for since my you know, early 20s, uh, maybe my teens. And I met to Brad as an advisor and said, Brad, can you help me figure out how to work on our pitch? This is before I got all this uh, feedback. Thankfully, Brad's extremely smart and like immediately understood what we were talking about and was like, this is great. Like, and he gave me all this advice. And then I'm on the way home from that meeting and I get a phone call. It's Brad. He's like, David, so are you, would, you, would I be able to invest? And so for this first round, we wanted to raise a big round. We ended up kind of completely striking out on fundraising, but Brad, Brad was the round. And, and Brad helped us, you know, kind of really joined our team as an ad hoc member. He was like really into it, helped us find the right developers. He, he brought us the, 
most amazing user interface designer, user experience person I've mm-hmm. ever met, who's just like a genius. It's hard to explain because she's even asked like a lot of questions. She's <laughs> just like talk and she hears it's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Or like, do you know what I'm talking about? She's like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, no, no question. Nope. Just she's quiet. Then she comes back and it's like the like this like incredibly simple layout. Like and the more complicated our app gets, it's everything stays simple. And it's this like it's a genius. It's a genius thing. Like she came back with one user interface that I talked to right before we chatted. And she just she's like, Oh, well, some of these things can be in an error state, so we'll just circle them in red. Like we had all like like and it's such a visually identifiable thing. It's like and a message can pop up here explaining why on this particular condition is met. And it's I don't know, like none of the individual things are actually all that complicated, but they're beautiful, easy to understand, simple. And I don't know, it's hard to appreciate that because it's so, it looks so easy. So I love Carly. Carly, if you're listening, I love you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being on our team. (laughs) Great shout out to Carly. So Brad saved our bacon and helped us get this. We got together a tech team. This guy, you're, I've been, (laughs) this is another funny story. So so we wanted to do this like in a really scrappy way. So our first plan was, all right, we're gonna do this big thing and we're gonna get, get raised, you know, a million dollars and go build this MVP. And the new plan was, okay, $250,000, scrappy, small team, like let's just get this done, prove it out in the marketplace, which by the way is a way better way to do it. And I highly recommend to anybody. So we went out and we, we found a guy through word of mouth. We started interviewing tons of developers on Upwork. We started to try to put together this team. And so we found this guy in Russia who was like amazing backend guy, highly, highly recommended. And we retained him and we retained this front end. Now it's like two weeks into the project and we're talking about like database design and like we can't get him to understand our product exactly. And I'm starting to have like heart palpitations like, oh my God, we're going <laughs> to, this project is going to be a disaster. Like, I, I, what are we going to do? We have to pull the cord. And then I've been working with a guy with Diabetes Daily on the tech side, Yura, since about 2008. He helped us with an integration and it was the only tech project I'd ever had at that point, maybe even until today, that worked perfectly well. Like it's just flawless. And so I started working with Yura and said, Yura, can you please like help us with Diabetes Daily and be our guy for all things tech? And, and he, he became that. And so I'm telling him this and before he had bid on this project, but it was like an order of magnitude more expensive. And I was like, tell him about this project. He's like, Dave, let me talk to the guys. And so he came back two days later with an email. He's like, 0.1 to 10. I will do it for this price. If we cannot get it done by this time, our team will volunteer their time until it's live. We will do support it. We will do this. And it will be a great experience. And Yura put together the most amazing team, just A-plus engineers. He's in Germany, they're in Ukraine. And this is one of those things where it's like, I can't even imagine how this would have worked without Yura. Because our tech is really good and our release cycle is really predictable. Things are really scalable. We just had an audit with a firm, a code audit, and they're like, no feedback. Like, everything is done right. This seems scalable, secure, infrastructure. <laughs> like, And that's unusual. A lot of projects end up not with that. But Euro's day job, he works for a $1.5 billion German tech startup. And like he is like a lead engineer of a 40, 50 person team. And like, so all he does is like secure, scalable stuff in addition to the hacky startup stuff. So he like, he understands both things and that's super rare. So got, you know, Yura helped bring this thing to life and Carly's interface. So we wanted to get the, the, the beta launched in 90 days. That was our plan. So we started on January 1 and it launched August 1st. <laughs> So, 
And yep. it's just like one thing after. Because it turns out research is really, really, really complicated. You need to be able to profile panelists, bring them onto a platform. You need to manage the profiles. You need to be able to distribute research. You need a survey builder with all, like you have to build like a survey monkey on top of like a CRM, basically, just to mm. like be at an MVP. It was nuts. It was like a, the kind of scope that was kind of nuts. And it still feels a, a little bit nuts. But I had a baby. I got married uh, two years ago. And I had a baby on May 2nd of 2020. So we're in the, we're in the thick of COVID. Let me tell you, let's, let's, let's like go back to this time. Do you yes, remember what's yes. going on May 2nd about last year? I remember nothing from the last year. Okay. So <laughs> it's hard to think about this now, but the stock market had been completely crushed. It was down like 30%. So here I am, I've had a baby and our Beta is now, we wanted to get done in July. I did not know it was going to take till August. Okay, maybe it was even mid-August. And we had enough money to survive till August. So new baby, new dad, wife, staying home with the baby at the time. Got a great job now. And just like, holy shit, I better get this like fundraising show on the road. But I felt pretty good because we had laid the groundwork during the previous fundraising round. And there were a lot of people who had actually been interested. And so I had really good quick results called like four or five, six people got to like 300,000, 400,000 interest in like a week. Amazing. Right. And had some firms that were interested and then it came back from everyone like, yeah, yeah, we're ready to go. Just want a lead investor because everyone wants someone to do the due diligence. So if there is any business that is like the old video game lemmings, like investors is the business. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, like I can tell you, like the first institutional investor took four or five months. The second yeah. one took like one month. The final one took two weeks and it's, it's three meetings, then an offer in 10 days of me deciding whether we wanted to expand our round. And that was the biggest check. It was twice as big as the second biggest check. So it's like this crazy experience of as soon as someone will jump off the cliff, then everyone else will go. They're like, all right, we're in, we're in, we're in, we're in. So. I screwed up because I, I, I took this early interest, like, hey, we can get to like, a, we were, I think when we went out, we wanted to raise like $350,000, maybe a million. And like, okay, we have enough people to get 30, 40% of the way there. Like, how hard can it be once you are like, we'll get a couple more and we'll be most of the way there and we'll just close it out. That is not good thinking. Like the good thinking is, all right, we're going to run a process. And so we need to get 20 firms venture firms, preferably a number not in Cleveland to drive valuation up, to be interested during the same like two-week period and run a process. But I didn't know anything about that. So what saved me there, it's funny, not to go to every story. Every story is an example of someone else saving me, but that's kind of how it's worked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Brad, my first investor, really also saved me here because he introduced me to his brother, Michael Klassen, who is an executive at Greenspring Associates, which is a $10 billion private equity firm, one of the, the biggest in the, one of the, like a VC to the VCs. And then he introduced me just to get some advice, this guy, Harris Dranch, who works at the uh, Coppermine Capital, which is the Gunn Family Foundation. They, together, we started having some strategic meetings and, and they became my advisory board and they understand VC like really deeply understand it. And it was amazing. We started talking with, we ended up being a little too early for them, but a a, a top tier LA VC firm. 
like top, top, top tier. They invest in like 10 investments a year and they screen like 12 in our companies. And we got to like the final round of diligence with them, which maybe 10 other companies get to each year. But the reason we were able to do that was Michael was able to back channel and get feedback from people. Hey, what do you think of this stack? Like, and I was able to go through and tweak it and it just went from a 12 slide deck to a seven slide deck. It went from having a demo to not having a demo. It went from being all about the product in the future to all about our business traction. And we just kind of reoriented the whole thing. I started to learn from them how an investor thinks. I started to learn any word on a slide if they get your investor on a tangent of unrelated questions, it will torch you and torpedo you. So like it became <laughs> this incredible shrinking deck. It got smaller and smaller with every pitch because every time someone got thrown off by a word, you have to get rid of that word and replace it with something else or nothing. And, and, and mostly it was nothing. Like people apparently, they love a five minute pitch. You get off track in 12 minutes, but five minutes, it's like you can understand the big picture and not, not, not get off track. It's a journey. <laughs> it's a journey. It's it's an emotional roller coaster, but you can get good at it, right? It's and then you realize the mm-hmm. the no's are part of it, and you, it's more like sales, right? You have to have that orientation of oh, I'm going to talk to 100 people, get 95 no's, and get my five yeses, and and that's okay. You really want the right people. I, there's I think there's this other problem of like when you're getting advisors, like this was true of Diabetes Daily, right? We needed these people who are so passionate about the community. For our advisors, Mm -hmm. we need people who are passionate about us and passionate about our future and really, really want to help. And and unlocking this, I missed the boat in my 20s. I did not have an advisory board. I did not have a a brain trust. Like, I wonder what I could have done if I had people to, like, help me learn one or two things, not the hard way. Right. Other people have figured it out before. We have these big blind spots. I'll give you an example. So one of them in fundraising, we kept getting this feedback, like this people skeptical, like, all right, but how can you scale to other verticals? You did this in diabetes because you have diabetes daily. How can you scale? And we would show, here's our cost per acquisition. I haven't even talked about what Thrivable is, but here's our, you know, what is our, you know, cost per acquisition <laughs> to, to, to build out panelists. And we, we can get it really cost effectively through social media advertising, through some partnerships. And people kept pushing back and pushing back on the scalability, the scalability. And we, we gathered some data and started to have a pretty compelling answer. It's interesting. It's a year later, and I have not questions about it. I know we can do it, but I am recognizing how challenging scalability is and how much effort it is to build the partnerships and the channels to actually do this. And our next hire is going to be someone to focus on scaling our panel. So these investors and these people who had seen a ton of deals, they were right. Like they saw that this was probably the highest risk area. But I was like so confident in our vision that. I wasn't kind of internalizing that. And I think maybe now that I turned 40, like my, my cocky 20s do it myself, 30s trying to figure out to do it with a team. I'm now fully in the humbling myself stage of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's helping. Yeah. Well, you've ultimately closed this, this, this round here, right? It's ultimately, it's ultimately worked. It's, it's ultimately worked. And it's, it's my advisory board. It's, it's relationship building. It's, my COO, Ryan, uh, my number two, like he would say my superpower is seeing around corners. I'm really good at just imagining the future. Like I can just kind of play an imaginary land. It's very, you know, love my imagination. 
Ryan's Mr. Like where the rubber meets the road. He wants to hear a customer say it. He wants to see proof. He wants to see a study. He wants everything. And so Ryan is the one who is like, I, I think that I was missing in all those other years. Like, here's my idea, but how do you bring it down to earth? How do you make it actionable? How do you like, why is this going to fail? And how do we work around it? And how do we make sure that's even a good idea? Like it might sound good, but but is it good? Is it actually good? So, so how are you thinking about the future of Thrivable at this point, you know, having closed the round, having, you know, pitched the vision to investors and gotten their buy-in and, you know, now the rubber is hitting the road as, as the team's working on the, the product, but, but where, what, what's the direction you're headed? Where, where do you want to take this? Yeah. So we set out for this on-demand access to patient insights, your company, like, you know, instead of going to an agency two to four months, three to four weeks, if they're scrappy, we got it down to under 72 hours, often under 48 hours, sometimes under 24 hours. And so we want to, you know, step one is scaling this through all of healthcare, right? So any condition. And it's amazing. Everyone we talk to in the healthcare space, this is a problem for like 100%. And there's really no one else doing this in the healthcare space. So we have this wide open opportunity to kind of run and chase this incredibly hard to scale business. He's kind of got to go, it's a two-sided marketplace. So to get customers, you need panelists, but you need them in a specific condition. And it's not just diabetes. It's like pre-diabetes, type one diabetes, type two diabetes, caregivers of children with diabetes. Like diabetes is actually like five verticals and every condition is like that. And so you kind of have to go out and build these five, 10, 15,000 person panels, condition by condition by condition. So we're, we're doing that. Well, we're building out the technology that really focuses on automating the end-to-end -end research process and making it easy. I mean, I mean, that's enough to make us a big, successful company, right? If we can dominate and be the destination for real-time market research platform for healthcare, then I think we're onto something. I do think there's some other lingering opportunities beyond that, like the tools that we created to run our own company, to do panel management, I think are pretty phenomenal and best of breed. So I think there might end up being some other plays that are more broad, that are more like traditional SaaS, like SaaS platform versus really what we're building, which is a marketplace. And so I think we're, we're just really being pulled by our customers, right? And pulled by all the stuff we had to do manual to say like, what do we have to do so that you have a question on Monday, you have an answer on Tuesday and it can drive your decisions. And this stuff is impactful. We, we did a, a study recently where, so it was a company and they had an accessory of a couple accessories they were working on. And they had been working on these accessories like during the winter, but they had a couple questions about they wanted to put to patients, but not a lot, right? They might pay like $3,000 to answer them. They're not going to pay $20,000, $30,000 to answer them. And so they put this on hold for like six, seven, eight months. It's like this big pricing study. And on the end of the pricing study, they like attached a couple of these questions. It's before they had access to our platform and, and could do it quickly and easily. And the results came back and they decided to toss an accessory. And like this is a tech product accessory, like someone like an engineering team had been working on this, iterating, iterating, iterating. And so like I started to think about like how many hours was that? 100, 200, 300, 500 hours of time that someone was going and they kept going because they had no way to know if it was going to be wanted or not. And so deep down inside, like I really believe that if patients and companies can work together to create the next generation of care, it will be more responsive to patients. And those companies will be agile. They'll do it faster with less waste. They will deliver a product that is more profitable. Like this is like one of the great win-wins. It's like, you know, patients are like, give me what I want. And companies are like, yes, here is what you want. And, you know, patients are happy. The companies are happy. It's, it just seems like a good way to do things. And so 
I really feel good about our ability to be part of making that happen. That's the bulk of it. And, and the other part of it is I, I love our team. I love like when I, when I brought Ryan on board and he would say this whenever we're interviewing people, he's like, the first thing David said is I want to be the best place to work. He's like, I want to have high revenue so we can have high revenue per employee so we can have amazing best benefits. I want people to grow. I want to take care of their families. I want them to buy a house. I want to send their kids to college. Like I want them to have great retirements. Like I want people and I want them to have, like love going to work. And he's looking at me like, and he's like, I was thinking this guy smoking. He's like, that's crazy. Like, and then like later he's like thinking about, it. he's like, is that because he was working at Deloitte, right? Big consulting firm. Like there it's like, Hey, why don't we like roll you into this cigarette and smoke you down to a stub? And then you're either a partner or, you know, you go work somewhere else and, you know, take advantage of, you know, mental health services to recover. <laughs> but it's real. I, I think if you take care of people, openness, transparency, trust, really know what people want. Like we're so big on our, our culture. And, and to me, that's like the two things. Like when you're building a company, you're building a set of repeatable processes, right? You're, you're, that can output, like whatever your product is, it can create money, it can create growth and create success. And so yeah. the heart of that is, right, it's the people and it's the culture. And then it's the process those people and culture are following. And, and maybe the vision, like you're going in the right direction. And so I've become obsessed with our culture, obsessed with our team and obsessed with really listening. Like I can't build this on my back. Like the other things I built in my life, I tried to build on my back and it, it's, Tybee's deal is work, but like I realize all the things that I could have done that I didn't do. Like I see that in hindsight, like all those opportunities. And I don't want to do that again. I need like 20 people smarter than me that are waking up every day and thinking, all right, how are we going to take care of our family? How are we going to take care of this product? Like how are we going to make the future? So that's what we're doing. That's yeah. what I see. It's that. <laughs> It's that exercise in humility. No, it's very clear that you love your team. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's fun. It's fun. I don't know. I just, I I, th- I didn't know I had to lead or be a leader. I like and so I married this woman Carrie, who is like a EQ genius. Apparently, my family our EQs are like just barely over the functional line, but her family is all like EQ savants. And so, like just listening to her, I hear how she has difficult conversations, hear how she engages people, and so. The last four years of just like being at the foot of someone who's good at people, like honesty, transparency, being really forthright, but like compassionate candor, right? Not a, like an offensive honesty, but one that cares about the other person. Like I've really tried to embody that and it's it's been transformative. It's quite a journey that that you've been on. I'll tie it back to to Cleveland here as we as we work to to wrap up. You know, one of the the things really outside the context of entrepreneurship and and startups that that we're trying to do here is paint a collective collage of not necessarily people's favorite things in Cleveland, but of things that other people may not know about in the spirit of having, you know, other people already figured the stuff out. So you don't have to figure it out yourself. Love it. You know, what are, uh, what are some of your hidden gems here in Cleveland? Hidden gems in Cleveland. Definitely like right. The outdoors here are the best. So if the Buckeye Trail in Cuyahoga Valley National Park, going to Jate, the Jate Trailhead, and you can go south to Blue Hen Falls or north towards Bedford Reservation. It's quiet, not super trafficked. It's stunningly beautiful. It's Cleveland's not that hilly. It's like hilly and winding and, and year-round gorgeous. So that's my number one favorite gem. Number two, I don't even know if it's still open, but I think Ginkgo's and uh, sushi. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I think the chef's tasting there is one of the most phenomenal meals. 
Ryan lived in Asia for a while, but I brought him here when I wanted to convince him to join the team, him and his partner, and and took him there. And he, you know, we had this world class meal. And he's like, I cannot. Like, you must have said a hundred times, I can't believe we're in Cleveland. <laughs> how, how can this be in Cleveland? Like, this is like like Asia, like top of the line, like kind of experience. So definitely Ginkos if you like sushi. After that, I don't know. There's so many good little food places. I live in and Shaker by Horseshoe Lake. So for me, it's on the rice bakery. I go there five uh, days a week. The best. Or Gigi's yep. for a a, a, um, a My Romance cock. Not My Romance. Whatever the one. Ask for the drink with the walnut bitters. Whatever the bourbon walnut bitters drink is. That's love that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the pleasant surprise of people in Cleveland is my favorite when they come. It's like, what? We're here? Well, our yes. reputation could not be our lake caught on fire, you know, major league movie. Like, this is like what people know of, of Cleveland. It's, it's We're back. The roaring 20s. We're ready to be out, party, have a good time. Maybe take care of each other. <laughs> well, David, I, I really appreciate, you know, you coming on and and really going in deep on the story and, and the journey that you've taken building Thrivable and the community with, with Diabetes Daily. It's really, it's really incredible. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for shining a light on uh, all the people doing cool things here. It's really, really nice to get a sense of what people are creating. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If if folks have anything that they would like to follow up with you about, where is the best place for them to reach you? David at thrivable.app. Email. I can't believe I get out my email. I'm like uh, in a day with you, but I will accept email from fans. I will accept complaints. To our, to our dozens of listeners here about <laughs> to get inundated. Uh, maybe one day I'll get more into Twitter, but I'm, I'm kind of off social media. <laughs> all right. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.